This is Public Health Review. I'm Robert Johnson. On this episode, an alarming increase in suicides in America and the urgent work to save lives. When we really dug down into the data to look at state level increases, I think that's where we saw some where we might have felt a little more surprised that some states were experiencing rate increases over the period of up to 58%. States searching for a solution. We can't point to one thing and say, if you do this, you're gonna, you are, I promise you, you will see a reduction in your suicide rate. And promise from a mobile app. Almost everyone has a smartphone and kids particularly love it for social contact with friends, but also having it available when they're really feeling completely alone and uh, suicidal. They can contact someone and get an immediate response. Welcome to Public Health Review, a podcast brought to you by the Association of State and Territorial Health Officials. With each episode, we discuss the most pressing public health issues facing our states and territories and explore what health departments are doing to improve the condition of our country's most vulnerable populations. Today, a difficult topic that seems to be getting worse, suicide in America. A June 2018 CDC Vital Signs report studied trends in state suicide rates from 1999 through 2016. Its conclusions were disturbing. Not only is suicide one of the leading causes of death in our country, but rates increased in nearly every state during the years studied. In half the states, rates jumped by more than 30 percent. Dr. Deb Stone was on the team that authored the report, She's a behavioral scientist in the CDC's Division of Violence Prevention. She spoke to us about the study from her office in Atlanta. Basically what's happening is that suicide is a growing public health problem. And, um, for instance, nearly 45,000 lives were lost to suicide in 2016, which is approximately one suicide every 12 minutes. Um, In our recent Vital Signs report, in which we examined the rate increases across all 50 states in that period of time, 1999 and 2016, we found that suicides increased in nearly every state across the nation and that in actually 25 of those states, rates increased by more than 30%. So um, also according to that data, uh, we've we found that suicide is one of three leading causes of death to have increased from the prior year. So other uh, two leading causes that increased were unintentional injuries and Alzheimer's disease. Um, And we know that suicide is really just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, Many more people, of course, uh, attempt suicide and think about suicide. In fact, suicide and attempts cost the nation approximately $70 billion in direct medical and work loss costs. So it's a really big problem and it's growing. Why do you think it's growing? Um, Well, the vital statistics data um, that we use to track the trends are great for doing just that, tracking trends. Unfortunately, they don't really tell us about the causal factors that are driving the increases. Um, But we do do know a few things, however. Um, We know that suicide is not caused by any one factor. Um, Instead, it's typically caused by a combination or interaction of factors across multiple levels, such as the individual relationship, factors at the community and societal levels, all 
interacting together. Um, some of the factors that may be leading to suicide include economic conditions or the opioid overdose epidemic, social media, and factors impacting more on rural areas. Um, so, for example, we look at the Great Recession in the late 2000s, and we know that there were subsequent financial challenges and concerns about economic instability um, that may have been contributing to suicide risk. And our past research indeed does show that um, suicide tends to wax and wane depending on the business cycles. And so when there is a recession, we often see um, increases in suicide and even though the recession has ended, some parts of the country um, really have taken longer to bounce back. For example, we see rates of suicide increasing in rural areas, and rural areas were, also, were already um, struggling with well-known suicide risk factors such as um, greater so- social isolation and things like limited access to uh, mental health care. And we also um, can look at the opioid overdose epidemic, and we know that, of course, the deaths from opioids have been increasing, and substance misuse is already an established risk factor for suicide, so that if there's increased availability of opioids, we um, wouldn't be surprised to see increasing use and misuse, and, um, and that could be driving up the rate of suicide higher. Um, And when we look at the people who are actually dying from suicide and those who are dying from opioid overdoses, um, we see that there is a rather large overlap there. Um, For example, um, middle-aged white males come to mind. Some of the other factors that we sometimes consider are social media. Um, And social media is a little bit more complex because social media... Um, can have both a a positive or a negative impact. And so changes in social media content or use may um, be associated with suicide. So we know, for example, that suicide or social media, rather, can be a negative factor when it's used to bully people or is used to somehow romanticize suicide or provide even harmful content on how to actually take one's own life. But on the other hand, we know that social media and its intended use to increase social connectedness can be a very positive thing and help people to get the help that they need. And so more research on all of these factors is really needed to determine the reasons for the increases that we've been seeing. How long did it take the team to put this vital signs report together? Oh, it took um, many months, um, over six months. Were you surprised, was the group surprised as this trend started to develop in your research? Uh, I assume it was troubling, but was it was it shocking to you? Is it something you didn't expect to see? Um, well, CDC has been tracking uh, suicide for many years, actually. And so I wouldn't say this, what we found was shocking. Um, I think what I would say is that... Um, when we really dug down into the data to look at state level increases, I think that's where we saw some where we might have felt a little more surprised that some states were experiencing rate increases over the period of up to 58 percent. And even the states that were experiencing the least 
uh, increases were from between 6 and 18%. So I think that's where we, we felt some surprise or saw some results that we hadn't necessarily expected because we haven't, we haven't necessarily been tracking all of the 50 states at any given time. Um, so when we really dug down into that data, um, we were you know, we saw that these rates were increasing pretty dramatically. And, of course, we've known that the rates overall have been going up, so that would be in, um, uh, that would be in agreement with what we've seen before. You said you thought that more research would be necessary in order to really get to the cause of all of this. What kind of research should we be doing? I think that we really need to be you know, studying multiple factors that are associated with suicide. So we know, for instance, that um, mental health problems are a very important contributor to suicide. We also found that in our vital signs report that actually more than half of the people who did die by suicide did not have a known mental health condition. So I think it's really important to be looking into some of these other factors that are related to suicide. Some of the things that we found in our vital signs report, for example, were that regardless of of mental health condition or not, there were some very common factors that showed up, um, and these included relationship problems. These could include conflicts or arguments with an intimate partner or a family member. Um, They could even include interpersonal violence. Some of the other factors that we know are associated include um, and that what that we saw were associated with suicide were crises so people who many people experienced a crisis in the in the recent weeks before their suicide or some people were actually anticipating a crisis which is a little bit um, maybe hard to really wrap your head around but for instance if somebody had a, a court date that was that was pending or they were just arrested for something or they um, had a job uh, meeting that was coming up where perhaps there was going to be something negative coming out. Any of these kinds of pending crises were also very relevant in the suicides. And of course, there's also, we know, as I mentioned, problematic substance use, um, not just opioids, but could be other prescription drugs as well and illicit drugs. And people also experience physical health problems um, frequently. So we know that these are oftentimes associated with suicide. And then one of the things that we talk less about, I think, in the suicide research itself is looking at um, job and financial problems. So I think it's really important that we we look at these factors a bit more to understand how they impact suicide and what can be done to make sure that there are effective interventions to reduce the risk of suicide among people who may be having trouble making ends meet or who have recently lost a job. And then that would also be uh, related to to housing. So we know that housing issues are also a concern for people. So really when we talk about doing more research, it means that we need to be looking into all of the factors that are impacting suicide and considering different interventions that can impact on all of those. Is that how public health gets involved? Yes, that is how um, public health gets involved. So public health starts with, you know, using data and tracking the problem of suicide. Um, So we 
we first will um, do that to understand the nature of the problem, understand the nature of the risk. And then we really need to um, look at those things that are impacting on suicide, such as the things I just mentioned. Um, and then we need to uh, test and to develop and test interventions for suicide prevention and, and then get out the word of, of what works to the, to the larger community. But yes, public health is, is great because it provides a broad approach to suicide prevention that can, that can look at both upstream and downstream factors associated with suicide. And what I mean by upstream would be um, those things that, are, that can actually um, affect suicide risk before it even happens. So public health is interested in preventing the risk before they start. So for example, by promoting connectedness or being attuned to people's financial issues by having greater access and delivery of care, um, making sure that that's available to all people where they live and work. Those are um, really important things that can help prevent the risk in the first place. And then, of course, we are also interested in reducing the harm and um, reducing risk further down the stream when people are already have made an attempt or are thinking about suicide. Western states seem to be most impacted by suicide. We're exploring the issue with two of them in this episode, Utah and Colorado. Jared Heinemann is the Deputy Chief of Violence and Injury Prevention at the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment. With Colorado always among the top 10 states with the highest suicide rates, we asked him, why the West? A lot of the discussion around this is theoretical. We don't have a great sense of why the Western U.S. has the highest suicide rates, but the, some, of the, some of the predominant theories include the ideas that we really embrace uh, that Western mentality in Colorado and the Western U.S., or that cowboy mentality that suggests, hey, if you're struggling with something, particularly if it's an emotional or a mental health issue, you know, the theory is pick yourself, pull yourself up by your bootstraps or take care of your problems on your own or don't ask for help. Um, and I certainly think that uh, while that may be a good rugged individualism mentality for some parts of life, it's certainly not true if you're struggling with an emotional issue that you can't fix on your own. Uh, you know, there's research from Harvard that shows that states that have high in-home firearm ownership rates are also states that have high suicide rates. Um, there are access uh, issues in Colorado and the western U.S., so there are not enough behavioral health care providers. Uh, there are lots of mental health professional shortage areas, and so people even who may want uh, services have to drive. You know, if you live in eastern Colorado, you may have to drive to the Front Range, so to Colorado Springs or to Denver or to Fort Collins to access services, which may be two hours away. And so Colorado as a state is working to improve those systems, but the reality is for many people, accessing services is a challenge. Um, and so those are some of, the, some of the theories. There's also some new research that talks about altitude and suicide. Some of that research has been disputed, so I think that's still up in the air. And then in places like Colorado, we have 
higher substance abuse rates, which certainly can be contributing factors for things like suicide. So there are lots of, of reasons why, but none of them that we can just put our finger on that says this is why Colorado has a higher suicide rate than Massachusetts, for example. Now, all that said, the people who watch what states are doing, like the CDC, think that Colorado is a model based on some of the programs that you're implementing to try and address this issue. So give us an overview of what you're doing, and then we'll get into some of the details. The Office of Suicide Prevention in Colorado has been around since the year 2000. And so since 2000, we have had state funding set aside specifically to fund the Colorado Office of Suicide Prevention. So we have some consistency in funding. While the funding is small, it's allowed us to build some infrastructure and some consistency in how we do this work. And the reason I mention that is because that's part of why we were identified by some national partners, which now includes the CDC, uh, but also includes the Suicide Prevention Resource Center, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, the Injury Control Research Center for Suicide Prevention, and the National Action Alliance. Uh, a couple of leaders in the field approached me a few years ago to, to basically uh, present this idea that they want to build a comprehensive suicide prevention strategy and implement and evaluate it. And the idea was to start in one state. And we had the fortune of uh, being given the first offer to partner with them on uh, what we, you know, a full court press for suicide prevention. And of course, I said, yes, we would gladly do that. And so we have been working towards developing a comprehensive suicide prevention strategy for the last couple of years in partnership with national partners, and now shifting our partnership attention to local partners in Colorado. And so that's, that's, um, that's the goal and the idea, and we're building that process now. Your program has a number of goals uh, we've looked at those, and I thought it might be interesting uh, to walk through each one of them and you know get into some detail if we could do sure. that. The first one, I think, or at least the first one on the list I've seen is fund local initiatives. Yeah, we don't think anything can have success uh, as we as we develop this process without local buy-in, support, and leadership. Uh, and what I would argue in the suicide prevention world, which is also true in Colorado, is Historically, and, and now, actually, suicide prevention is very piecemeal, uh, very much underfunded. And so even if we're doing programs that we think and the research tells us works, and I'll give you one example, the Sources of Strength program is a school-based suicide prevention program that focuses on resiliency and positive youth development and connectedness to students and school and adults. Um, which has some evidence of effect of effectiveness. You know, we implement that in, at a really small scale in Colorado, and so the idea of this is that's one program that we know works if implemented with fidelity. So one of our strategies would be to implement that program in an, in one community across all, for example, the high schools in that community. So instead of one high school or two high schools in a county. We want to find a way to implement it in every high school in that county as one component of a comprehensive plan. And that allows you to really jump in and see if it works, right? Yeah, exactly. And so if we actually are doing this across high schools, does it have an impact on the high school students in that community across that county? And yeah, so that's a part of the evaluation piece as well. 
the goal, I assume, would be if it does work, go argue for dollars to do it statewide. Yep, absolutely. So we have decided as part of this initiative, because the initial push was like, hey, let's do this statewide in Colorado. And we realized that we're talking about 64 counties, uh, millions and millions and millions of dollars to implement most strategies across the state. So we decided by looking at the data and particularly looking at burden uh, to, to initially focus on six counties in Colorado that have high numbers of suicides each year, but also have suicide rates that are higher than the Colorado rate. And so that's where we're starting now. We're really going to focus efforts on these six counties to see if we can have an impact there. And then if we do have impact, when we have impact, to then expand it to other parts of Colorado and for our national partners when we show an impact in those six counties. And as we take it to other counties in Colorado, they can take the model to other states in the U.S. to begin replication at that level. Is that what you mean when you state as a goal focus on high-risk communities? That's correct. Yep, absolutely. And so we really landed right off the bat on the fact that we can't do everything for everybody. So focus on the high-risk populations or segments of communities uh, across the lifespan. And so we also historically have spent much, much of the funding for suicide prevention in the U.S., is specifically for youth suicide prevention. But if our goal is to reduce the suicide rate 20% by 2025, we absolutely better be targeting more than just children and adolescents because when we talk about the number and the rates, that's one of the less risk, high-risk groups. And so we better be looking at working-age adults and older adults as well. Other than the actual numbers of people who have taken their own lives, what other metrics are you reviewing to determine where to put your effort? The suicide rate indicator is a longer-term outcome, so we're trying to decide, like, what are some key uh, indicators that are interim or short-term that we can start looking at? One good one that I think is important specifically for one high-risk demographic is adult males. Uh, We know that males get diagnosed for things like depression at much lower rates than females, and we believe, and the research supports, that in part that's because males don't actually reach out for help. So they don't actually get an opportunity to be diagnosed with depression because they never show up at the therapist's office to get a diagnosis. And so an early indicator would be to see an increase in the number of males diagnosed for depression because that would suggest to us that more men are actually seeking professional help. One of your programs in your toolkit, which we'll talk about shortly, is called Man Therapy. That's what you're talking about here, right? Yeah, that's exactly what we're talking about. Uh, And Man Therapy was designed specifically to reach working-age men who don't uh, typically like to reach out for help. And so so there's three major goals for Man Therapy. One, long-term, we want to see... Uh, the suicide rate drop among working-age males. But but well before that, we just want to change the social norms around how men and society uh, defines mental health as a core component of men's health. Two, we want to empower men to take ownership of their mental health. And so that's where the, the, the depression indicator would show up. It's like we, if we can create a website and a space that encourages men to take care of themselves before they're in crisis, we think we might be able to have an impact on, on self-reported or even diagnosed cases of depression so that men are, are learning and changing their behavior to, to include mental health as a core component of their overall health. 
Another of the stated program goals has to do with training individuals to recognize warning signs and then respond. Are we talking about public health professionals, physicians, the community at large? Who are the individuals in that statement? I'll say yes, Every, all of the above. Uh, but I think there's a tiered way to do it. Um, again, historically in suicide prevention, I would argue we've focused suicide prevention, what we call gatekeeper training, so teaching people the risk factors and warning signs and how to intervene. Really, the idea was give gatekeeper training to everybody in a community so that everyone is trained, and, and that's, that's ideal. That would be great if that were the case. The challenge is we have done those trainings, and a core component of those training programs is once you identify somebody who's suicidal, your job then is to refer them to the professionals. Well, we know from research that not all of the professionals are actually trained and comfortable or confident or competent to work with suicidal individuals. So key for us right now in Colorado is to actually make sure that all of the mental health providers, primary care docs, that the health care professionals are actually competent and confident to work with suicidal folks so that when they do get referred to the professionals, they're equipped and feel comfortable to, to work with them. And so we've focused a lot of our attention lately on doing real uh, uh, clear or, or deliberate uh, suicide prevention-specific training for clinicians and healthcare providers. And then collaborative partnerships. Everyone talks about collaboration. What are you doing in that area? Are you doing anything different? I don't know if it's, yeah, different for sure, and in part because of this Colorado National Collaborative, we have multi-layers of partnership that we're trying to build, so national and state partnership, and now including local partnership in that. And so what we've been doing over the last several months is is actually taking our state and national partners and going and meeting in the six counties that we've identified as, as ideal partners to meet with the community leaders in those uh, communities. Just last week, we were in southwest Colorado and La Plata and Montezuma counties to meet with leaders from those communities just to get, get buy-in and to build partnership and to talk about shared priorities and shared strategies. And my main goal from leaving those meetings was to leave with agreement from the local partners that, yes, they want to partner moving forward, and, yes, we agree that we can find common ground and that we can come together towards a common goal. And in all six communities, as of last Friday, we have agreement that, yeah, absolutely, we want to move forward, and we already have common goals and priorities. And so that's the collaborative piece, because national partners and even state partners, like I'm, I live in the Denver metro area. I don't know anything about the communities in southwest Colorado. And so it's their, that's, that's their work, and it can only be successful if they are leading the efforts with support from us. And so that's, that's our goal. Earlier you talked about the Wild West, and I'm an Arizonan, so I understand what you're talking about there. It's sort of that man-up attitude. And then you talked about guns, which obviously have a big role uh, to play uh, in this issue. And there's a project in Colorado called the Gun Shop Project. Where did that idea come from, and what do you do as part of that effort? Yeah, it's a project we actually borrowed from New Hampshire. The New Hampshire Gun Shop Project is where this began, and it was originated by a gun shop owner in New Hampshire who had some uh, 
customers uh, over a short period of time who purchased firearms from this gentleman's gun shop and in a short amount of time used those firearms to take their lives. And so he, uh, to his credit, reached out to suicide prevention and public health officials in New Hampshire and said, I don't like this and I don't want this to happen. What can we do about it? And they built this program to educate uh, firearms owners and firearms retailers uh, about the importance uh, of of suicide prevention being a component of firearm safety. And the basic message is, if you are a gun owner and someone in your house, including yourself, is suicidal, you have to do everything in your power to ensure that that individual does not have access to your firearms while they're in crisis. And so the message is a real simple safety one. And what I've learned over the years since I, you know, I'm, I am not in the firearms community, but I have, I have uh, taken some steps to become more familiar with the firearms community. What I have learned is that overwhelmingly the firearms community is hypersensitive to the concept of safety. Uh, that's the first thing you're taught, and you're taught over and over and over again the, the safety rules of being a firearms owner. But the component that has not been traditionally a part of that safety, those safety rules, is the suicide prevention component. And so this project adds that component, which is really, really cool. And so we simply connected with the folks in New Hampshire uh, and at the uh, Means Matter project at Harvard and asked them if we could borrow uh, the project. And like many other states, we have, we have adopted and adapted the program and implemented it in Colorado. And what's really cool about it from a public health standpoint, particularly since I'm a state employee in a state that has some very contentious uh, gun laws, is this is an approach that, that avoids the Second Amendment debate uh, because it's about partnering with the firearms community with a message of safety that they've really genuinely embraced. It's, it's been one of my favorite projects I've ever worked on just because the partnership is so unique and it's so different from my traditional public health partnerships that has been really rewarding. And that's the kind of thinking that is required on a problem like this. No doubt. Yeah, no doubt. And so to the credit of the original founders of this project, it's, uh, and they continue to consult with states who do this work, um, it's it's the, the, the approach of let's do this in a way that works for everyone from both sides, that both sides are motivated to do the work. And I think we've taken a similar approach with things like man therapy is like, all right, it's going to be very difficult to change, you know, a thousand years of of, uh, gender socialization, of social norms about what defines what masculinity is. So there's important work in changing those social norms, but we chose instead to, to try to meet men where they are, not all men, of course, but to try to meet uh, men who really embrace traditional gender roles and norms and to, to try to change their way of thinking. So change the way that we define what masculinity means simply by saying, hey, you can't be the manliest of men you can be without having totally dialed in mental health. And so that's, that's a similar approach that we've taken with that project. What are the impacts you've noticed so far as a result of all of these programs? Honestly, it's the... And this isn't a great impact, but it's a starting place. Is I think just the conversations that it's generated. Uh, I think people are paying attention to the work that we're doing in Colorado, which you know that puts quite a lot of pressure on us. But it's pressure I think that we welcome because it's so such important work. It's so frustrating 
to work in a field where you know you you do the best you can with the limited resources that you have and then every year the data come out and they show an increase in the suicide rate and an increased number of people dying by suicide because we haven't yet figured out what works Colorado has developed an eight-page toolkit packed with helpful resources for those hoping to do more to prevent suicide in their states and communities. The link to the toolkit is in the show notes for this episode. In Utah, leaders have set an ambitious goal to reduce suicide rates by 10% by the year 2021. Dr. Joseph Miner is executive director of Utah's Department of Health. His team's aggressive plan to help people in crisis includes, among other components, a mobile app. Is it helping, do you think, maybe head off some potential suicide attempts? Oh, absolutely. We call it, it's called Safe UT mobile app. Uh, it has been used. Actually, uh, several of our TV stations have picked up on this and reported how it has been used and uh, is thought to have uh, saved lives. Don't know that we have. Um, very good data on this uh, yet, but certainly anecdotal experiences with it that definitely uh, have been felt to save lives. When the app receives a call for help, an awaiting crisis team responds. They staff that crisis line and actually have the um, crisis response teams that will go out with first responders if there's suspicion of of a mental health issue or threats of suicide or homicide. So the crisis teams are attached to the mobile app, uh, not just the fire departments or the police departments? Oh, absolutely. They're the ones that actually, uh, this uh, crisis uh, unit there with the Utah University Neuropsychiatric Unit actually receives these uh, texts and uh, communications. Uh, All incoming chats, texts, and calls And these professionals provide supportive crisis counseling, suicide prevention, and referral services. And uh, and it's the same um, institution that that does the uh, mobile crisis outreach teams as well. Utah has built what Miner believes is a first-of-its-kind database of information about suicides in the state. The results of a recent five-year study into youth suicide in Utah provides unsettling but necessary insights. We have... Uh, particularly for the uh, youth suicide, you know, we had uh, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention come out. Uh, it was a Utah EPI-aid investigation with, from CDC that um, analyzed all of our uh, 150 suicide deaths of uh, youth aged 10 to 17 that died by suicide over a five-year period, 2011 through 2015. Uh, the majority were male, white, aged 15, uh, in this age group, 15 to 17. And um, this was a hundred over this five-year period. It was a 136 percent increase from uh, year to year, almost a 23 percent increase each year over that time period. Whereas nationally. It was uh, only a 23% increase, or about 6% a year, dramatically higher than the national rate. 
Most, uh, 92% died by suffocation, uh, hanging, or uh, firearms. Among uh, 142 of those uh, youth, uh, common precipitating circumstances included mental health issues, uh, a little over a third, about a third had depression, which so some of these will overlap with the same individual, history of suicide ideation or a previous suicide attempt, uh, an experience of recent uh, crisis. That was over half of them, 55% had a recent crisis. Um, and uh, over 68% had experienced two or more precipitating uh, circumstances. A third of them had disclosed uh, some intent, 47% left a note, 20% had one or more of the following drugs in their system, alcohol, cocaine, amphetamine, marijuana, or an opiate. 13% uh, had family conflict, which resulted in a res uh, result of technology restriction. This had never been seen before, uh, been acknowledged, uh, even though some may have suspected it. They had access to their smartphone or mobile phone uh, restricted, and that... Um, was a contributing issue in 13% of these youth suicides. A fifth of them, 20%, had a history of cutting. He admits getting the information needed to adjust programming is tough, especially when posing hard questions to grieving families. But here again, Utah is working on a solution. You know, a lot of times families don't want to talk to us following a suicide. Um, and we have to call a few times to see if, uh, if that changes. We're actually uh, developing a method of data collection that will automate this collection. So they're, they're answering at their own time, uh, on their own time frame, a data collection uh, that they can give as survivors to answer questions on their own time, take breaks, return to the survey later. That's a partnership with the University of Utah School of Medicine, the Department of Psychiatry, um, and also uh, the University of New Hampshire is participating with that as well. Just a reminder, for more information about the work in Colorado and Utah, visit the show notes for this episode. You'll find the links there. Thanks for listening to Public Health Review. If the show's interesting and helpful, please share it with your colleagues. And if you have comments or questions, we'd like to hear from you. Email us at pr at asto.org. That's pr at asto.org. This show is a production of the Association of State and Territorial Health Officials. For Public Health Review, I'm Robert Johnson. Be well.